Let's start reading verse 10. And would you stand, please, if you can? Philippians chapter 4, starting verse 10. Verse 10 through 20. Here's the word of the Lord. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. Oh, you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. Circumstance I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. That's the ESV. Yet, it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs again and again. Oh, not that I'm seeking the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Oh, to our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Please be seated. Lord, we ask You once again, as Joseph said, and we say Amen, that's a supernatural activity. So we need the Holy Spirit to be here. All these notes are worthless if you are not here working in us, empowering us to understand and apply. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts will be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. In 2019, the New York Post published an article entitled, Americans Waste About $18,000 on Non-Essential Expenses a Year. And then the article goes on to say, between eating out, paying for cable and streaming services, receiving subscription boxes, and other superfluous spending, the average American spends $1,497 per month on non-essential items. According to the new research, that can add up to almost $18,000 a year, or more than a million dollars over the course of an adult lifetime. Then there was another, another article saying how in 2019, Americans spent 90, almost $96 billion in pets, with pets, dogs and cats and birds. Another article, the title was, Why You Feel Guilty When You Spend Money and How to Stop. So the article is saying, Why You Feel Guilty When You Spend Money With Yourself? And then they're trying to help you how you can stop feeling guilty by being selfish with your money. I didn't check, but soon we'll be able to know how much people are spending with all the transgender surgeries. That's going to be a vast amount of money there also. 
there were many articles showing how people who are bored and depressed are prone to spend more money with themselves. And how the lockdowns verified that with people spending so much money buying stuff on the internet that they actually don't need. And then you might say, oof, I'm glad that in the church it's different. I'm glad that people who profess Christ do not resemble the society and the culture. That's what we would expect. Here's one article I came across showing numbers in the church. The average amount of giving per person in church is $17 per week. Another had the average giving per person in church each year is $884. One said that only about 5% of the church goers had the concept of tithing. 80% of Americans give just 2% of their income. In a book called A Revolution in Generosity, Wesley Wilmer, he writes, in their annual report, the state of the church giving, says, giving has not kept up with income. In 1933, the depth of the Great Depression, per capita giving was 3.2%. In 1995, it was still 3%. By 2004, when Americans were over 555% richer after taxes and inflation than in the Great Depression, Protestants were giving 2.5% of their income to churches. Rather than giving back to God as He blesses, Christians are adopting the miserly pattern of the world. And that's good. That's very good for us to see these things because that reveals, it's a revelation of sin, what sin does to men. Sin incurves, turns us inside ourselves. We are just looking at ourselves. That's what sin does. Augustine and Luther, they said that man, because of sin, is homo incurvatus inse. So man is curved, turned inward to oneself. Sin places us in the center of the universe. That's what sin does. The center of everything becomes ourselves. And then when you are in the center of your life, when you are in the center of the universe, no wonder you become depressed. You have a boring life. People who are suffering of boredom is because people are not serving. And then that shows how you're spending your money. It's a revelation. A boring, depressing, purposeless life will be manifesting how you view and spend your money. So how you view and spend your money is a revelation of who is in the center of your life. And that's not me saying, that's Jesus saying. So, for example, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, the context is money. So we are not taking this text out of context. So the treasure there refers to money. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So how you view money, how you spend your money, 
reveals who is in the center of your life. Donald Whitney, he writes in his book, Spiritual Discipline, he says, The use of your money and how you give, it's one of the best ways of evaluating your relationship with Christ and your spiritual trustworthiness. If you love Christ with all your heart, your giving will reflect that. Amen? That's why it is said that your checkbook tells more about you than almost anything else. If after your death, a biographer or your children were to scan your canceled checks for insight in what kind of Christian you were, what conclusions would they come to? Why are we talking about that? Because Paul is dealing with this subject. That's what he's dealing with in Philippians. And as we look at the church in Philippi, we see a church whose treasure is the gospel. And we know that the treasure is Christ and the gospel because of how they are using their money, their finances, their giving, sacrificially, generously to the work of the gospel. So as you look to the church in Philippi, we see who is in the center of their lives. And it's not themselves, but the gospel and the Lord Jesus. So, just a word of context, it's important, because the church in Philippi became an example to all the other churches of generosity, sacrificial giving. And that's important because we are studying the church of Philippi as we are going through Philippians. And now we are coming to this portion where Paul is dealing with their gift, the money that they sent to Paul. And it's important to understand the situation of the church. So I would invite you to turn your Bibles with me. Let's open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And we see how the church in Philippi is an example to the other churches. So, in starting chapter 8, Paul is dealing with the collection of money from churches in order to support and help the brothers, the Christians in Jerusalem. So, look how Paul says to the Christians in Corinth. We want you to know, brothers, you should not be ignorant about this thing here. That's very important. That's what Paul is saying. You all should know. About the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. The churches of Macedonia are the churches in Philippi, the churches in Thessalonica, and the churches in Berea. But most scholars believe that when Paul is talking about the churches in Macedonia, his primary reference is the church of Philippi. Because of the account of how the Philippians kept supporting Paul and giving generously. For, look at that, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. 
And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then, by the will of God, to us. So notice, please know here, that their giving, their generous giving, is in the midst of what? Extreme, extreme poverty. And we know that they were suffering. You can look, go back to Philippians. Look at chapter 1 of Philippians, verse 29. For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. And part of suffering for Christ was the social aspect. And suffering socially led to economic suffering. And you see that they are having a hard time financially. And probably that's why Paul does not go to the Philippians first to ask for the offering. But when the Philippians hear about the fact that Paul is collecting money, they say, Paul, are you kidding we need to give. We want to give. So they beg earnestly to give. That's the opposite that we see today. What we see with most people is we begging to give. Give. So you can reflect Christ. So you can enjoy Him. Look at this church. They are the ones begging to give. Paul, why are you hindering us from looking like Christ? And giving sacrificially. So here you get a picture of this church in Philippi. They are broke as a joke and yet they beg to give. Because they know how beautiful, how Christ-like, what a privilege it is to give sacrificially, generously to the kingdom of God. So that's the Philippians. That's this church. So when you are reading about this gift that they're sending to Paul, the money they're giving to Paul, don't think, oh, that's a wealthy church. They have an abundance of money. That's why they're giving. No, extreme poverty. Broke financially. And yet, all that they have, they want to give to God's kingdom. So now we have the background. Let's go to the outline. Here's the outline of this morning's sermon. First, the perspective of Paul on their offering. And that's the first part of verse 18. So, the perspective of, of Paul. How the Apostle Paul sees this offering towards him. Then you're going to see the perspective of God on their offering. Then you're going to see the promise of God. And then the praise of God in verse 20. So, the perspective of Paul, the perspective of God, the promise of God, and then the praise of God. Let's go to the first one, the perspective of Paul. So he says in verse 18, Oh, I have received full payment and more, and I'm well supplied, having received from, from Epaphroditus the gift you sent me. Now you need to remember that when Epaphroditus went to take the gift, he didn't jump into his car, got the AC on, closed the windows, and drove to where Paul was. No, that was a very dangerous trip. Remember, he almost died on the way there. So that's Paul's way of saying, 
the gift you gave me arrived safely in the hands of Epaphroditus. It's here. Everything that you sent, it's here. He was not robbed. He didn't lose. It's all here. The expression here that we have, I have received full payment, Paul says. I have received full payment. Or the NAS has received everything in full. was actually a term used in the business when you're giving a receipt to someone. So that was business language. For example, someone paid you. Uh, I buy something from David. I give him the money and then he gives me the receipt. And that basically what would be the receipt. It's paid in full. That's what Paul is saying here. And that some scholars think that Paul is being cold and just this businessman-like. But actually it's the opposite. I agree with Moisés Silva in his commentary. He says, it's a mistake for us to think that Paul is being cold. Actually, we need to see this as Paul writing this letter to friends. They're very close friends. And he's cracking a joke. You've got to see Paul with a big smile as he's dictating that. And just saying to friends, hey, you paid me for. He's just playing with them. That's what friends do. The debt of love that we had, it's paid in full. That's what Paul is doing here. And then he says, I have received full payment and more. That's the ESV. I, I prefer the NEAS that says, and I have in abundance. Or have an abundance. And that's exactly, because it's a verb there. It's not the more. It's a verb. Paul is saying, hey, I have received full payment and I abound. That's what Paul is saying. I abound. And it's important because Paul used this word just earlier that he knows how to abound. And then in chapter 1, look with me at chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 9. That was Paul's prayer for the Philippians. And it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more. So what is taking place here as the love of the Philippians abound. It overflows into Paul's life in such a way that now he abounds. Do you see what's taking place? Oh, my prayer is that your love will abound more and more. And their love is abounding. And it's overflowing into Paul's life. So Paul is abounding also. So now we know when Paul said in chapter 4, I know how to abound, that he abounds through the abundance of other churches. As the Lord is giving in abundance and you are giving in abundance, the others abound. So, it's beautiful what Paul says here. He says, I'm well supplied. I'm well supplied having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent me. I'm well supplied literally means I'm filled to the top. He's filled. And I was thinking, here is Paul. Where, where is Paul? Where is Paul? In prison. Remember the prison system under the Roman Empire had nothing to do with the American prison system. No cable, no blankets, no warm food. You had to pay for your rental. It was a dungeon. Ugly, nasty place where Paul would be. He can't work. And he says, 
I'm abounding. I'm full to the top. You see, when we think about abundance, especially here in our American society, when we think about abundance, we think about what? The freezer full of meat. The pantry full of food. Steaks. Salmon. Money to save. Money to go on a trip. That's what we think abundance. Right? What is abundance for Paul? In a prison. Maybe a new cloak. Maybe a new garment. Maybe a new pair of sandals. Some coins that he can pay now his rental. Maybe some dry bread. And he says, I abound. Do you see how contentment is powerful? Do you see how contentment is beautiful? He feels like a king. I'm abounding. I'm full to the top. So many Christians, they receive a gift that they don't like, they get cranky. Are you serious that you gave me a CD? Are you serious that you gave me a book? After all the work I have been doing in this church, and the only thing you're going to give me is a Starbucks card? A discontent heart is just like the grave. Always asking for more, 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 more. The grave is never satisfied. Just like a discontent heart. I have talked to so many people. They're so imprisoned to the system of the American perspective of abundance that they could never, they could never leave this place and go serve Christ in some places in Africa, Indonesia, India, China. Do you know why? Because you'd never have contentment with very little. Therefore, you will never know the joy, the joy of serving Christ in these places. Because you cannot forsake the American abundance not the biblical understanding of abundance so may we learn the art of true contentment because it affects and infects everything so let me ask you can you say with Paul I'm full to the top I'm abounding can you say that when you don't get the job you're looking for when you don't have the spouse that you were longing for, when you don't have children and you want children, when you don't get what you want, can you say, I'm, Lord, I abound. I have an abundance. I'm full to the top. So that's Paul's perspective. 
Now let's see God's perspective. Having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. You see, we are prone to see financial offerings, the money that we give to the Lord, as something unimportant. A lot of times we see the money as something dirty, mundane, worldly. Actually, in God's sight, our money can become a beautiful instrument of worship. That's all we see right here. Paul says that their monetary gift is a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. The language here is from the Old Testament. So, for example, Genesis 8 with Noah offering that sacrifice and it's pleasing. It smells good. That's the word that there is this aroma. Just like seasoning steak. For those who like steak, and you put that steak in the grill and that smell. Mm. And that was the picture. As they were burning the beautiful animal. The perfect animal. And the, all the smell going to God's presence. And it was pleasing because it was matching His standard. And it was as if the, the one who was offering now was coming to the presence of God and God was pleased with that person through the sacrifice. So we see that the, the giving must be sacrificial, must be just like a sacrifice. And let me talk to you just for a little bit. Most Christians, most Christians, they view Christian giving as tithing. That's all we learn. You need to tithe. But the problem is that under the New Covenant, there are no tithing. Second, you have to, you have to know much more than most Hebrew Old Testament scholars because most Hebrew Old Testament scholars they have a very difficult time figuring out all the tithings that there were for the, the Jews. One scholar says it's, it's difficult to work, to work out the amount that was actually tithed. Some scholars describe two different ways of explaining the Old Testament text on tithing. According to one view, 14 tithes were to be given over seven years. Why another interpretation sees that 12 tithes were given over 7 years. The scholar says it's also difficult to know the exact amount that was tithed. In any case, the amount totaled much more than 10%. So I don't know who taught you they need to give 10%. You never heard from me? I think it's a, a very easy way to teach self-centeredness. You give 10% to the Lord. And then you have 90% for yourself. What a deal! 90% for myself? Is that, what? Is that the teaching under the New Covenant? You give 10% to the Lord and you keep 90% for yourself? 
Is that the teaching under the New Covenant? For most people, for most of us, 10% is not sacrificial. For most of us here, 10% is not sacrificial. Amen? <laughs> the silence. The silence reigns. <laughs> we see in Philippians 4 that a better tithe instead of tithing is sacrificial offering. The sacrificial offering. It must be costly. It must be sacred to the Lord. If our giving is not sacrificial, costly, it will not be an offering. And will not be a fragrant offering, pleasing and acceptable to God. So instead of teaching our children others 10%, and that's what I hear people, why not start with 10%? Why not start with 50%? That's why we teach our children. Why don't you start with 60%? Why 10%? Who taught us that? Give 10%, start with 10%. And you can keep 90 for yourself. Why don't you teach people? Why don't you start with 60%? Oh, I'm going to have to stop spending a lot of money. Yes, amen. If our giving does not hinder us from doing all that we want, it's not sacrificial. What sacrifice is that that allows you to do whatever you want? That's what I hear from most people when they have a hard time giving. First thing is, I don't have money in the end of the month to give. First of all, the Lord doesn't want your leftovers. The Lord does not want your leftovers. The whole principle of first fruit is to honor God, is to come with Him with your best and say, I don't know about tomorrow, but I know about today. And I know what you require from me. So first of all, it's not about where you're going to, your leftover. Second, a lot of times people say, I'm scared if I give more, I won't have money to buy certain things. And I say, Amen. Our giving should hinder us from buying certain things. Especially unnecessary things. I live in America. I made my money. It's mine. That's the beauty of giving sacrificially. Because you're showing that your time, your effort, all that you impose in working and making that money is now given back to the Lord. And notice also how it's a beautiful act of worship, giving. He says, Having received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. It's beautiful. It's lovely. It's pleasing. It's attractive. That's how see God. That's how God sees the check or the cash they place inside that box. When it's done sacrificially, generously, joyfully, that's how God sees that cash, that check. It pleases Him. It's a sweet aroma in His sight. 
interesting how Paul uses these words in other New Testament texts. The word for fragrant offering, sacrifice, acceptable, pleasing. The same word fragrant offering is used in Ephesians 5.2. In Ephesians 5.2, Paul says, be imitators of God. And then he goes on to talk about Jesus and how Jesus, look at that, walking love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. And then he says, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Look at that. The language used to describe Jesus' sacrifice is now used for our giving. I don't know if, if you can see that. I pray that you can see. But that's amazing. How can Paul do that? The language used for the sacrifice of Christ, now he used for our giving. You see how you're giving? You must see with new eyes you're giving. It's not just a moment so you can drop that check, just throw that money there. It's an act of worship. The author of Hebrews, he says, Do not neglect to do good and to share. Do you remember the word koinonia from last Lord's Day? Koinonia, to share, to fellowship, implies giving of money. Do not neglect to do good and to give what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So we see that Christ, sometimes you think, Oh, Christ fulfilled the Old Testament, therefore I don't need to offer any sacrifice anymore. That's not what the New Testament says. There's abundance of language for us to be offering ourselves as sacrifice, our giving, our singing, our sharing. It's all part of the sacrifice that we offer now under the new covenant. Peter says, we read this morning, towards the bottom there, Peter 2.5, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And now we know by getting that passage in Paul, this in Peter, and we know that one of these spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God is our giving financially. Romans 12.1 I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Huh. Goes into giving. And you compare that to Paul's language in Philippians, part of offering ourselves as a living sacrifice comes into the monetary gift that we give. So, giving financially... I have here, giving financially to the Lord is as much part of the worship service as singing, reading the Scriptures, preaching and praying. Do you believe that? Here you go. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Here's what the early church was doing. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. What is that? The fellowship, koinonia, giving, giving to the breaking of bread and prayers. So when they assembled, there was one aspect of the worship service that was giving to the Lord. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, 
Paul says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do on the first day of every week. Each of you is to put something aside and store up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. Why the first day of the week? Why the first day of the week? What day is today? The first day of the week. What do we do on the first day of the week? We assemble to worship. So you see, the collection was done in the first day of the week when the church was assembled together. And that's something we thought about, we have talked about before as elders, and we sometimes we, we have a subject, we talk, and then we just leave up there, and then sometimes we come back. And that's something we have talked, is about bringing the giving to part of the church service. And not because we need money. Not because we need money. This church is pretty wealthy for the size it is. But because it's part of worship. It's part of worship. You don't need to answer, but would you be, don't need to answer publicly, but would you be offended if we add the giving of our offerings to the Sunday service? You see, one of the reasons at first I was completely against giving is because during the service, is because of the other extreme. Because you go to certain churches and they're asking for money all the time. All the time is asking for money with lies. And then sometimes we go to the other extreme where, oh no, so we should not be asking for money at all. But then you think, is that right to you? Should you not add that into the worship gathering of the saints, just like was done in the early church? I know some Christians who they split their monthly giving so they can every Sunday bring something to the Lord. And that's, I think that's, I understand, they told me. It's from the principle, first Paul says, on the first day, and then there was the principle in the Old Testament that you should not come into the Lord's gathering empty hand. So, my, my desire is that as you walk toward the offering box, that your heart will be overwhelmed with awe and thanksgiving. That God has changed you. That now it's a delight to give to the Lord. We who once were stingy, selfish, greedy, ungenerous, close-fisted, ungiving people, now have become extravagant, generous, like most of you, givers. That's the power of the gospel. So as you walk towards the small wooden box, see that as a majestic act of God upon your life in changing your heart, and instead of trying to keep and keep and keep, you want to give. That's the power of the gospel in your life. And it's visible, it's evident in this church. By how so many of you give.
So when you walk towards the offering box, you must walk with a heart filled with awe, amazement, wonder that Christ has changed you. Singing. Singing what we just sang here. My richest gain I count but loss. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that would still be an offering far too small. And we know that it becomes pleasing, acceptable, not because we are giving, but because we are in Christ. Christ has changed us. We are in union with Christ. Therefore, it's pleasing and acceptable as we are imitating our Lord. And notice also that the ultimate receiver is God Himself. Paul says, Having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to me? No, to God. Ultimately, what you are giving is to the Lord. And there is that principle throughout the Scriptures that as you are blessing the servant, you are actually blessing the Master. As you are blessing the Son, the child, you are actually blessing whom? The Father of the child. That's what we see here. And that's the, honestly, that's the greatest joy in our hearts. Is to see you not giving so you can have the gospel being preached, though it's a great part, but because ultimately you know that behind all that's going on in this church is Christ Jesus Himself, and you want to give to Him and bless His name with that. And let's see the promise, the promise of God. Verse 19, And my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Before we move on, I just want to let you know that there is a manuscript variant here. So some manuscripts have just one change in a word there. So in some manuscripts you have a promise, like we have with the great majority of the English versions. So it says, Plato say, my God will supply. In other manuscripts they have the verb as denoting a desire, may my God supply. And both in the end are going to be good. I'll take here just the ESV. We can move on as a promise. So we are taking this text as a promise of God because there are other places in the Scripture where God promises to bless His children and provide for His children. So that's okay. But what is important is to not take this text out of context. I have seen so many people taking this text out of the context as if that applies to everyone. No. That's a very specific promise to a very specific church. Amen? And this church has been faithful in their partnership in the gospel. It's a church that has been faithful in giving sacrificially and generously, consistently to the Lord. And that's where the promise comes. So don't think you can just use your money the way you want and then take hold of this promise and say, Oh, that's mine. No, this promise is to a very specific church. It's inseparable from the preceding verses that show that this church is faithful, generous, sacrificial. Okay? So Paul says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches 
in glory in Christ Jesus. And my God will supply everywhere. Greed wants every need of yours. And that's important. I was telling the kids at our home, the parents decide what the children's needs are, right? Can you imagine if you let the kids decide what they need? So it's the same with us. God decides what our needs are. That's very important. When He promises to supply every single need of ours, He's not saying that you are going to decide what your need is, but He is going to decide with His infinite wisdom and love and care. Paul has already stated that they are going to suffer. Oh, it has been grace to you. It's a gift from God. You need to suffer. So, we can be very clear and know that that's not a promise that you're not going to suffer. They are suffering. They're suffering financially too. There is no promise of a relief from suffering. God sees our suffering as a vital part of the Christian life. But He will provide the peace that we need. He will provide the power to be content. And He provides His own presence. The Lord is near. 4-5. And notice that Paul says that He will supply our needs not according to the standards of our society, but according to His riches in glory. And there are two ways we can see that. First of all, is in glory. One day in glory, all our needs will be fully and completely supplied. No more tears. But there is also an aspect of present. When our Lord is supplying every single need of ours in Christ Jesus with His glorious riches. And He decides what these riches are that we need for this specific time and moment. And notice also, the text says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches in glory. Where? In Christ Jesus. In Christ. God's supply and fulfillment of our needs come only in Jesus. As one scholar says, all the treasures of God are unlocked and made available in Christ Jesus. That's why we sing in Christ alone. How rich a treasure we possess in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen? And notice Paul says, and my God, my God, my God. That's covenantal language. And now we will be their God. And they will be my people. And Paul knows this God. He's my God. And Paul knows very well how this God provides for his needs. Even when he goes through things like this. In afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, three times shipwrecked, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, Danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. In all these things, he tasted the glorious riches of God in Christ Jesus. That's very important. Don't you think that Paul is promising an easy life? But in all these things, he has tasted, 
He has experienced the riches of God in Christ Jesus. Amen? And then finally, as if his heart cannot contain, as he's just thinking about all the riches that he has in Christ Jesus, in glory, and his heart just bursts into a doxology. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. You see, he is in chains, but his heart is not in chains. His heart is not in prison. His heart is not attached to money. So as he's thinking about all the glory that he has in Christ, all the riches and treasures in Christ, he's so burst into doxology. And you see how our finances should lead us also to behold the riches that we have in Christ Jesus in glory and be a means of glorifying God. Amen? So he says, to our God, Opa, he changed the pronouns. And my God will supply. And now he says, to our God. What is taking place here, Paul? That's something that Martin Luther said. The first thing you need to understand and you need to experience that Christ is yours. What Martin Luther said, Christus pro me, Christ for me. Christ is my Redeemer, my Savior, my Lord, my shield, my provider. It's not your parents' provider. It cannot be your spouse's Savior. He needs to be your own. So that's why he says, my God. But God never saves you to be just for yourself. He places you in His family. And that's what Luther said. It changes from Christus pro me to Christus pronobis for us. Places us into His family. And that's what Paul is doing here. And then there is the Amen. Amen. Because these letters were written for the public reading of God's people. So on a Sunday like that, one of the elders would get Paul's letter and read in church. And you can just imagine that he's, he's bursting this doxology and he says, Amen. The whole congregation would say, Amen. Let it be. That's true. That's what's taking place here. When a scholar says this, Amen, Amen, is that spontaneous and joyful endorsement of all that has been said. It's the yes of the worshiping church to God. So, as you look at the offering box, don't you ever, don't you ever minimize, despise. No. Look as an altar where you can now, because of Christ's sacrifice, now you can come and offer part of your life that's part of your, your finance is part of your life. How much you work, all the time involved, all the effort. And now you're giving to the Lord for His purpose, for His kingdom. So please, brothers and sisters, that's something so precious. Do not look at the offering as something mundane, worldly, just a duty that you have to do. But just like singing and praying and preaching, it's a wonderful time to express your gratitude to God for saving you and changing you. I don't know about you, but I'm pretty sure that before Christ came and saved you, you had your own kingdom prepared. What you're going to do with your own life. The kingdom that you're going to build. 
the money that you're going to save, the job you're going to take to make that money for yourself and your family. And then Christ comes and He takes hold of us. He changes our hearts, gives us a new heart. And now we are no longer what Luther said. Do you remember what he said? Homo incurvatus in se. Now through, because of the gospel, we are homo excurvatus ex se, curved out of ourselves. And we praise Him instead of just looking at ourselves. That's what the gospel does to us. So when you're walking towards that offering box, you offer looking to God, not to your own self. Praise the Lord. He changed my heart, therefore He changed my wallet, my, my possessions. Amen? Verse 19, the beautiful promise. And let me ask you, all the members here, have we not been seeing and tasting the faithfulness of God in providing for all our needs? You are an example. You are an example of sacrificial, generous consistent giving. And the Lord has been so merciful and so faithful to His promise. And even when everything is falling apart, His promises are true. And He keeps providing for our needs as a church. Look at our church. We have no need. We have no need. We have everything that we need. Look at this music team. We have people with finances, people with sermons, with everything. All our needs have been supplied. And above all, the need of having our hearts changed. And then we know that one day, in glory, everything will be fully, fully supplied. No more tears, no more hunger, no more thirst, no more pain. Amen? That's the good news. But well, there's the bad news. If there is good news, there must be bad news. And the bad news is, the outside Christ, you will always be the most miserable person. Stingy. Starving for something. No matter how much money you make. Many of us here have met rich people. People with abundance of money. And yet miserable lives. Lives falling apart. Why? Because there is absolutely no treasure outside Christ Jesus. So run to Him. The Father has His arms wide open to receive you and place His garment and give you the most precious inheritance of all. That's Jesus Christ Himself. Amen? And finally, finally, look with me who is the main character in this passage. Every single verse I have received full payment and more, and I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent me, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God, my God, Christ Jesus, to our God and Father. All that we are, all that we have, is because of Him. All that we give, derived from God giving us first, He gives us the desire to work, the ability to work, the health to work, the means to work. He gives us the generous heart, he gives us the sacrificial heart. He has given us the greatest provision of all, the provision of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we cannot but join our voices and say with Paul, Yes, to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. And the whole church, Amen. Amen. Father, we thank You. We thank You for 
Your love towards us. We who once were children of Satan, children of wrath, in Christ Jesus have been adopted into your family. Thank you for changing our hearts. This church is a beautiful, is a glorious evidence of the power of the gospel. Lord, it's overwhelming to see people here who once were curved into themselves, just looking to their own lives. They had themselves as the center of their lives. And now we see by their lives that You are the Lord. That their hearts are in heaven with Christ. And as we saw, it's all because of You. Not to us, but to Your name be the glory. And Father, please deliver us. Deliver us from Satan's attack. The temptation to be like our society, stingy, selfish, self-centered. Help us to grow into Christ's likeness. In Jesus' name, Amen.